Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. This is episode number 48, recorded on June 7th, 2016. My name is Julie Faithan Balzer, and with me is my co-host, Eileen Schubalzer. Hi, Mom. Hello, Julie. How are you? It's raining here. Yes, and it's raining here, too, a few blocks away. I was going to say, not that far. (laughs) Though I feel I came in from Tampa this morning, so I feel that I brought the uh, hurricane with me. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It's a gift. I just thought that I wanted to share the torrential rain and maybe we could build an arc together. Of course. I'll do whatever you want. I have to say there was actually a really beautiful sunset on my way home. I had uh, mom invited me over for dinner tonight. So I went over to have dinner and there was an unbelievably gorgeous sunset. And I actually pulled over to the side of the street uh, by a stop sign to take a couple of pictures because it was just all those wonderful colors of nature where, you know, the blend is just perfect. Do you want to say anything about why you were in Tampa? Um, So I was in Tampa for HSN and we sold out, which makes me feel like I'm awesome, even though it just means that things went well. Um, And I was there to sell the scan and cut and it was a lot of fun. I got to show off some of the new projects that I made. One of the things that I love about social media, which I know I've talked about before, is you make something in your house and you want to share it. And then there's a whole wide world of people who like to see it. And um, with some of the scan and cut projects, I make the videos months ahead of time so I can't always share it right away which makes me crazy but when I go to HSN I get to bring some of the projects that are actually for other months and I get to hold them up and show them and one of the things that I made that I love is I turned a silly picture of me into a t-shirt by um, scanning the photo into the machine into the scanning cut and having it then cut it out of heat apply material and I love what I love love loved is like actually one of the cameramen came up to me during my second presentation right before I went on and he said by the way I was here for the earlier presentation and I said oh yeah and he said um and I can't wait to make t-shirts for all my kids with my face on it and I thought that's fantastic because those camera guys are so bored and never interested in the fact that that project excited him made me even more excited about it Hooray. I know. Anyway, we're we're actually keeping in with the TV theme here because our guest um, is named Roxanne Coble. And, well, she, first of all, she's from L.A., so that's already very TV. Hi, Roxanne. Hi. Thanks um, for having me. My pleasure. Uh, And I actually don't know Roxanne almost at all. We met once. She came to be a guest on Make It Artsy. um, And I'm excited to find out a lot about her. So I'm going to read you her bio so that you sort of know about as much as I know, actually, about her. And we're going to find out together. That's so So official. (laughs) It is. It's super (laughs) official, right? We're very fancy here at the Adventures in Arting podcast. Um, So Roxanne Coble is a mixed media artist, illustrator, and maker of things, and she's known for her art journals, and her work fuses both mixed media and illustration. She's inspired by the quirks of everyday life. Completed pages embrace a balance of humor and dark emotional themes, all while exploring topical events that occur within her personal life. And she is a working, uh, she works as an artist and a freelance art educator, as I said, in L.A. So I have to say, I do think that that's a perfect description of your art journal pages, that they mix humor and dark emotional themes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm definitely drawn to the uh, the dark side of things. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, you have. So my mother uh, will not. Uh, I'm outing you, mom, as liking creepy uh, things. Uh. 
Yeah. <laughs> so I know you haven't seen Roxanne's work, which is actually kind of exciting because what I'm going to do is I'm going to make Roxanne exp- – I mean, you who are listening to the podcast will be able to see some of the pictures, obviously, on the podcast page and on the blog. But for the sake of conversation, Roxanne, would you sort of take a- any random page in your brain and kind of explain to us if a viewer were looking at it, what would they see? Yeah. I mean, I usually describe my work at first of just like total creative chaos. Like I jam pack a lot of stuff into my work. So it's like tons of paint, tons of ephemera, scraps of random stuff I've found. Uh, I layer it up like crazy town and then I paint in it some sort of illustration usually. Uh, And my illustrations, they range in what they might be, but let's just say I'm very drawn to, uh, you know, chopping off a hand uh, with blood patterns or uh, interesting transparent animals where you can see their organs or their bones, uh, that sort of thing. I and guess they that's have the a, I was going to say, they also have a sort of elongated, like Edward Gorey feeling in that kind of sense. Not as sketchy as he does, obviously. Yeah, I think with my figures, yeah, if I'm doing any sort of like human body or part of a body, it's definitely elongated is a good is a good word. It's very playful, illustrative, but definitely on the dark side. <laughs> yeah, I think I knew it. I love the hand motif that I've seen you use a lot. And there were a couple I remember seeing on the set of Make It Artsy where I feel like you had done nail polish on these severed hands. Yeah, well, that's a new thing. Lately, I've been doing these like witch nails on the hands. I feel like it makes them look a little bit more creepy. But I also am like obsessed with witches and like tarot and that sort of thing. So I feel like it helps me like drive the hands in that kind of direction but that's a phase right now I don't know how long that's gonna last but you know okay so there's two things I want to say which is one I think it's really interesting that you said the thing about tarot because I've been watching this show on Showtime called um oh this is gonna be hilarious when I can't remember the name of it uh Penny Dreadful and in it yeah it's an awesome show it's really creepy and weird but like there's this whole tarot thing in it and so a friend of mine gave me knew that I liked the show and gave me a pack of tarot cards and the thing that's interesting about those tarot cards is that they are there's a whole booklet in it that explains how tarot cards are like an artist driven thing originally and like individual people would make their own tarot with figures that like were meaningful to them and it started me thinking about making my own like tarot deck just because the illustrations are so interesting but that seems something that's a totally up your alley oh it is and believe it or not I actually uh, read tarot I have uh, a number of tarot decks actually and my first one that I received uh, was actually from my mom when I was in fifth grade I have this really old deck of tarot cards that I absolutely love but it's like you said it's filled with these really interesting you know illustrations and even today I feel like the tarot thing is like kind of making a comeback I don't know if it's like a hipster sort of (laughs) sort of thing but people are collecting tarot decks now even if they don't know how to read them for the artwork because it's cool it is it's really cool and it's also interesting because a lot of the cards I mean so I don't know how to read tarot but I wish I did and if I had known that you knew how I would have made you give me a tarot reading when I saw you but the thing that I think is really cool is the little booklet you know that comes with that that explains it often says like you get the death card or a card that looks really negative but it doesn't actually mean what you think it does and that sort of makes me think a little bit of your artwork with some of these like creepy images but they're funny Absolutely. And I'll sort of reveal actually, because I don't, I don't say what my imagery really means because I like to hear other people's interpretations. And I mean, Julie, you hit like the nail on the head there of uh, kind of what it might mean, even though it's kind of 
darker or grotesque. Uh, it actually might mean something completely different. And uh, the hand motif for me, and I'm obsessed with it and I do it all the time, uh, it connects to this really bizarre like fear anxiety that I have of what would happen or what would I do if I ever lost my right hand? Because I am right-handed and I draw and paint with my right hand. And especially now that that is my career and I do it full time, I have this really bizarre obsession phobia of losing my right hand. So that's why I repeat that image like obsessively in all my work. That's so interesting. You know, I think symbols in art are a fascinating thing. And I remember going to a Chagall exhibit um, at the New Museum in New York, and he was famous for using all sorts of symbols. Like a fish always represented his father, and he was always represented by a goat, and like time was represented by like a violin. I mean, just all sorts of interesting stuff. And it made me think about the idea that as artists, you know, the storytelling that goes into it about using motifs over and over about, you know, the hand representing sort of your anxiety or whatever else it is. And I, I think that's just a fun and interesting idea to play with those kind of motifs. And especially when you're in a journal format and kind of noting and connecting that back to art history too, because I'm a big art history buff. My college degree is actually in art history. Um, you know, I always think back to like the surrealists, the surrealists were doing that a lot with their symbolism and also that whole like automatic writing thing. So you'll see it in my work. I don't necessarily write words or phrases, although I've kind of been doing it lately, but they're not my own words. They're like song lyrics. Um, is this kind of like scribble of, I will scribble things, but then I will use my imagery, my symbols as my way to communicate my ideas or how I'm feeling. Uh, and then, you know, leave it open for interpretation of what other people see in it, what they, what it makes them feel. By the way, for people who aren't familiar with it, will you explain what automatic writing is? Yeah, automatic writing was a was something that was kind of invented or coined by the surrealists, uh, the surrealist movement, which was basically this whole, and it connects to psychology too, of a stream of consciousness sort of thing, of just what was in your head kind of pouring out of you and writing onto paper. Uh, there's, It's very complicated and psychological, but that's kind of the, the general gist of it. Well, I was going to say, in some ways, it makes me think like, so Julia Cameron wrote a book probably 20 years ago now, maybe even longer, called The Artist's Way, which I know I run into a lot of people who came to journaling through that book. Mm. And um, one of the things she suggests doing is these things called morning pages, mm. where she says that every morning you should write three pages, just stream of consciousness out of your brain to kind of dump it. And that's part of being creative. And it, it really, in my mind, completely comes from that automatic writing Oh, yeah. Idea. Yeah. That's interesting, too. I've never read the book, but it's interesting that it was morning because I find that that is usually when I am most, even though I'm not a morning morning person, which is really ironic, that is usually when I'm the most like fired up to work or paint or do something in my journal. Well, let's talk about mornings because as a fellow freelancer, I'm sure, and I'm not a morning person either. <laughs> let's talk about like, do you have, do you structure your day or is it kind of totally free form? Oh, you know, it's been challenging adjusting to that, like working from home full time and doing all that. I definitely try to structure my day the best I can, only because at the end of the day, if I haven't, I won't feel like I've done enough or I wasn't productive. So rather than beating myself up later on and being like, what did I do all day? I at least try to schedule it, even if it's even if it is art making, you know, of course, obviously, I got to tackle the, the annoying business things of emails, do this, blah, blah, blah. But I definitely will like pencil in like journal for two hours or 
work in my sketchbook for at least an hour or something. So at least I'm doing it daily. Yeah, I think that's really important that you make art every day in some way. Otherwise, I think you sort of lose contact with being an artist. Oh, yeah. And I mean, at the end of the day, too, it's a technical skill. So to be better and to progress even just your general body of work, you have to do it every day. Absolutely. So let's back up for a minute. So you said you were an art history major in college. Did you um, think that you would have a job as, as an artist or did you think you'd be a curator, a gallery owner, a teacher? Like what were you thinking with that? Yeah, so it's so interesting. Um, well, let me let me take it back a step even further than that. Uh, I've been studying art basically my entire life. My mom is an artist, an art educator, which by the way is why I totally adore this podcast of yours because I totally feel like <laughs> I love that it's you and your mom because it makes me think of me and my mom. It's so awesome. Um, so I've always been involved in art, studying art. Uh, and then when I got to high school, I didn't have like an art teacher in the classroom, really nudging me of like, okay, you can study studio art in college. There are jobs. You can make this into your career. So when I got to UCLA to declare my major, I was like, oh, I'll just major in art history instead, because that seems safer than doing a studio degree, which really in hindsight, I mean, like, I don't even know what I was thinking with that. Uh, but I think the long, the long term, I think was always maybe teaching community college or college art of some sort. Uh, even though when I graduated UCLA, I was super burned out and I drove right into a desk job. So I was working nine to five in the advertising industry for like five or six years before I really got more aggressive and started pursuing art as my career. Wow. Well, so what were you doing at the uh, ad agency? Nothing creative in any way whatsoever. I was basically an account executive managing campaigns, uh, TV campaigns, and just going insane, specifically infomercials, which is very interesting. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's crazy. And I'm in an infomercial somewhere, like one of those body transformation ones, like I did a fitness thing. Oh, yeah, it's, it's bonkers. Wow. Uh, but it wasn't until I met my now husband that he saw me sketching and drawing and slowly like just feeling like I was losing my mind and going crazy at a desk job. And he was kind of the first one to really say, what the heck are you doing? Like, why don't you pursue this art thing? So while working full-time nine-to-five job, I started working on my master's degree in painting and drawing. So did that for about a year. And then finally kind of was like, I need to make a real exit plan to get out of this job of mine. And thought, you know what? I'll go get a teaching credential. Because I kind of thought back to being that high school student, not having someone nudging me and saying, you can make art your, your career and you can make money off this and do it. I thought, you know what, I'll go back and get my credential and I will be that person for teenagers and be an advocate of the arts. So I was in a credential program. And at that point I quit my job entirely, was working towards my teaching credential full time, but also was nurturing this kind of artist, art educator, Thing on the side too. So eventually I just kind of went in that path instead of going the credential route. <laughs> That's exciting though, because I mean, I feel like you're a person who was trying to find the way to make this work for you. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the big thing too, is that like, I, I planned it, you know, it wasn't like, 
I just jumped into it and was like, okay, art's my job now. You know, I definitely had to be smart about it, you know, financially, business-wise, uh, you know. And by bun, my website and my blog and all that, I mean, that's been, you know, six years in the making. So long time. <laughs> Let's talk about, so if I want to talk about a whole bunch of stuff, but let's just talk about buy bun. Cause where did that come from? Yeah. So bun. So again, going back to high school, it's so interesting. All these things connect back to when I was like an angsty teenager. Uh, I used to sign my artwork with a little bunny outline. So I later got the bunny outline tattooed on myself as sort of like my recommitment to art. And my husband saw it and just started calling me bunny. And I I guess apparently I act like a bunny at times. Like I eat small meals and have (laughs) random bouts of of energy, I guess. (laughs) He started calling me bunny, which then turned into bun. And then when the time came for me to make my website, I didn't want to be like RoxanneCobble.com. I just didn't want to be like stuffy like that. So he was like, how about made by bun or by bun.com? So that went with that and it has stuck ever since. Interesting. And do you find that people, um, I've always wondered this just because my website has always been named Balzer Designs, even when I had no idea why I even called it Balzer Designs. And so it's always been connected to my name. And so I wonder, do you find that people, it takes them a minute to connect you to it? And is that good? Is that bad? Is it? I definitely went through like a growing phase of that, of like struggling where people were like, oh, who is this bun person? What's by bun? And it also just came off very like bloggy, not professional. Um, But I just kind of wrote it out and now, now it kind of works. I don't know. Cause it's kind of its own brand in a weird way. Uh, I don't know. And it's funny too, now that I, when I teach at workshops and classes and stuff, I have students that actually call me bun or bun bun, which is pretty funny. So <laughs> I like it now. Well, there's a, um, there's a woman I follow on Instagram who I love, who I believe her name is Emily McDowell and she makes, she's an illustrator and she does cards that have kind of a bad attitude. I mean, it's a oh. hilarious bad attitude. Yeah, she does like watercolor stuff, right? Yeah, she does. Yeah. And really just yeah. funny things and smart. And she she sort of taps into a lot of kind of cultural zeitgeist and like also odd things like divorce cards that actually are funny and like <laughs> speak to me and you know what I mean? Or like Mother's Day to someone who's not your mother but you wish was kind of cards. I mean, just like really funny, interesting stuff. And anyway, yeah. she um, had posted some stuff on Instagram that I thought was interesting talking about I guess that she named her company after her and she was like pro and con and talking about how as her company has now grown into having like paid employees and all that stuff, it's actually more difficult to have it named after her. Oh, interesting. Which really surprised me. And then I've heard other people say that they ran into problems. I mean, like, please, Lord, let me have this problem. But that when they got so big that they wanted to sell the company for, you know, tons of money. Well, at least yours is like a, a blend. You know what I mean? It's like Balzer Designs. It's not like your just your name. Just my Donald. name. Yeah. yeah like it's a good, good but they're ground. saying like, you know, if Martha Stewart sells Martha Stewart, you know what I mean? Then it's somebody else owns Martha Stewart. And if she wanted to start another business, then she'd have to be like, this is yeah. just Martha or something. And I think that has happened to people, which I think is interesting. So I always wonder, like, you go back and forth over that thing. Should you have named your business something different or should you have named it after you? You know what? I had just in as my business has grown, I had a bigger challenge with my name change uh, when I got married, 
was, am I going to take my name or am I going to keep it as Roxanne Coble? Because at that point I'd already had things published and my name was kind of becoming more well-known. So it was like, oh, do I change it? Is that going to throw things off? I, yeah, I was more debating that, but I ended up keeping my name. So my Coble is my maiden name. It would have been Siciliano if had which, I changed my name. It sends you to the back of the alphabet, which is just no good. <laughs> That's exactly what my mother said. <laughs> there you go. I would say all of us have, you know, I think, you know, mom, you've got, you've got the last name with the uh, farthest in the alphabet. I've got a B, she's got a C, you've got an H. None of us want to be in that back half. Once you go past M, it's just all over you. Get lost. I'm, I'm going to get hate mail on that one. Anyway, all names are good names. <laughs> Okay, so the other thing I want to talk about is I'm curious about your Etsy shop. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what kind of stuff you sell there and how long you've been doing that and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, that my Etsy shop is actually like relatively new. I think I've really only been like actually putting stuff in there for maybe like a year. Before that, I was on Big Cartel and just kind of would sell random little things through there, but it's really not I've learned that that is not necessarily the best platform to go through. Etsy's just so great because people can find you and follow you and they have a feed and all that good stuff. Um, but primarily there I sell, you know, my merch, my swag, uh, postcards. Uh, I also make handmade mini journals. So there are little mini journals that I sell up there, um, as well as my online class creatures. So it's interesting that you sell your class through Etsy. Yes. Well, that is, you know, I have to say too, this is my very first online class on my own. Um, and a big part of that too, you know, I didn't want to deal with kind of, you know, creating a separate website or putting it through my website because my website's designed in a very blog format. It's not really a traditional sort of website format. Um, and I wanted students to have immediate access to the class. So, the PDF is up there. As soon as they make their purchase, they can download the PDF and boom, they're they're off. So that was important to me. That's kind of one of the reasons why I did Etsy. Interesting. I just, you know, Etsy is one of those things like you always hear mixed results. Some people love Etsy. Some people hate it. Some people think it's like the greatest thing and run their serious business off it. Some people, it's a very incidental thing. Yeah. I don't know. So far, I like it. I mean, I don't have anything that I, you know, hate on it yet. Again, I'm, you know, it's only been about a year or so, so it's still kind of pretty fresh. <laughs> so tell us about your Creatures Online class. Yeah, so Creatures is really awesome, obviously, as I'd already said, because it is my first online class that I put out on my own. I've been in a number of group classes, 21 Secrets and Lifebook and all that jazz. Um, but Creatures was really a long time in the making. The class is inspired uh, by a journal spread that I had made a number of years ago. That's actually, it was published in Art Journal Magazine. Um, and it came about through this nightmare that I had one night. And it was like a reoccurring nightmare. I kept seeing these sort of black shadowy figures in my dreams. So they kept popping up in my journal. It was like I'd wake up in the morning and immediately like run to my workspace and, and illustrate these creatures. So when the time came for me to design an online class, there just something connected me back to that. I also just think it was kind of a pivotal point in my artistic career. Things kind of had sped up for me at that point. And, um, you know, I was starting to get recognized and my little business was growing. So that's, that's kind of what is the inspiration for the class. Um, but the class itself is, is really great because it's learning basically how to journal in my style. 
Um, and it's the first time I've ever put anything out there like that. And, uh, you know, it's just, it was a lot of work and took me a long time to put it together, but the work that students are making in it, it's just been really exciting to see. It's so cool. That is super cool. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I wanted to go back to something you actually said very early on in the podcast, which is you said like right now, uh, the witch obsession thing is a phase. Yes. Right. So my mom and I have gotten into, uh, well, many arguments. But recently, she keeps saying she's sick of eyes. I have been drawing, painting, whatevering eyes, like, obsessively for probably a year now. It's been, like, a thing. I, I have an eye stencil. I have an eye stamp that I designed, you know. And I just yeah. keep painting and drawing eyes. Maybe it's even been longer than that. And she's like, I'm sick of the eyes. Why can't you get past the eyes? And so we actually got into this fight where I was like, oh, really? Are you going to walk up to Picasso and say no more faces? Are you going to walk up to, you know, uh, whoever, you know, up to Chagall and say no more fish? Are you going to walk up to, you know, all these people and like tell them they can't do this motif anymore? It's over. And she was like, no, but you need to. And it was interesting to me because I was thinking, yeah, it's a, I'm definitely in that phase and I feel it. But there is also the thing about like, I mean, you look at, you know, Rothko went through many phases in his life, but then, and I have seen er, some of his earlier paintings and you're like, that's a Rothko, who knew? But then you see oh, his yeah. color field work and you're like, oh yeah, but that was just a phase for him, really. It's just, that's the phase we're caught on. I think when it comes to imagery like that, there is a reason why you are repeating that over and over again, or why you have that like craving or need to do it over and over again. And I think rather than just fighting it, I think you need to fully embrace it. Cause I think eventually you'll grow out of it. Like you, something else will become your new obsession and you'll move on. Um, but I think when it does strike and you're like, I need to make eyeballs, like make those eyeballs, just go to town with it. Cause you will, I think you will move out of it at some point. I think you do. I've actually that, really. made an interesting, or not necessarily interesting, but I've recently yes, made a Yes, we're not supposed to say interesting anymore. No, the word interesting is banned because <laughs> we say it all the time. Um, first, when you draw an eye, immediately your eye is drawn to it. You can't help looking. So I understand it's an extremely um, uh, uh, attractive motif. What I would say is, this may be TMI, but... I have a, an enormous sty in my eye right now. In fact, I'm going to the doctor tomorrow for it to the point where it's distorting the shape of my eye and it's really creepy looking. It's like the kind of thing that you would make up, you would put on a, someone in a horror movie. But it's actually <laughs> kind of fascinating because it your, distorts the eye. And I eye, even suggested to her... <laughs> Stop laughing. I even suggested <laughs> to Julie that she should try drawing some distorted eyes because it makes it to me more interesting. Maybe it's just my own self-obsession right now. What but, I was going to say was your eye sounds like something I would paint in my journal. Yeah, it totally so that's does. to your work. Yeah, it's right up my alley. <laughs> I like mystery and sinister. I have a house filled with things that have faces, whether it's a photograph, an animal, you know, whatever. And what I've found is that I like art where I have to make the story. The artist doesn't make it clear for me yeah. what is happening. And there's something off about it 
that I have to figure out. You know, it's a closed door, but with light coming from underneath it, or it's a face with no expression. So I can't quite figure out what this person is feeling. I'm drawn to that kind of thing. I am too. We're like two. Two yeah, you're right up my alley. Uh, I was going to say, yeah. there's so much creepy art in your house. I mean, there's like the painting Thank above you. the kitchen door, or it's a photograph or something that we call like the dead baby photo, which is not a dead baby, <laughs> by the way. It's like a, it's a doll with like a broken head or something like that. And there's the dead animal room, of course, which has all these, I mean, and you have a lot of paintings that I think have a kind of sinister feeling about it, but it, there's something so interesting that makes you take that step in you know and I think sometimes that is the thing about um like almost about the term sexy ugly but there is something beautiful about grotesque there is something intriguing about things that make you feel slightly off it's like I remember um talking about design with some students and I kept saying you know if you look at advertisements, that is that is design. I mean, especially in like expensive ads in magazines, that is somebody's doing your design work for your collages, you know, for you. And one of the things you'll notice is diagonals are used very sparingly. Because mm-hmm. advertisements, and you probably know this coming out of the ad world, you know, is that like advertisements are made to make you feel comfortable. Oh yeah, and diagonals make us feel deeply uncomfortable, and I don't know what the psychological reasons are for that. And there are many artists who have therefore used diagonals on per- for purposeful reasons to make us feel uncomfortable. But and I think that's sort of an f- interesting choice that artists make often about whether to make the reader feel comfortable or uncomfortable. Oh yeah, I mean that's like I think about that with my own artwork all the time. I definitely want people to sort of you know not look away they get sucked in intrigue all that stuff yes don't look away i used to say this when i would direct theater all the time which is i'd say i don't care if you like it or hate it but the worst reaction is to be like well, i don't even remember what was that that we saw oh. <laughs> yeah you don't want the eye to sort of drift over it and i always feel it the same way like when you go to a museum when you walk into a gallery and you look at the walls I want to be the painting that people walk up to or remember or, you know, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, or it's an online gallery. Again, you want that jump out moment. Oh, yeah. I think that's a big reason why I love performance art so much, because it's definitely one of those sort of situations where they make you feel uncomfortable as the viewer or participant or whatever that might be. And people ask me that all the time. They're like, what was your biggest, you know, you know, movement and art that inspires you or famous artists. And I'm like, you know, just the genre of performance art alone to me is so inspiring. Just the way that their brains work and how they're thinking about the piece collectively. And again, creating that whole scenario of like, you can't look away. It's a, you know, the car crash you can't look away from. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think that so many of the, um, people who have started sort of art revolutions are people who've done things that people just felt so strong. I mean, like when Jackson Pollock first came out with his drip paintings, people were, couldn't look away from them. What a mess. Yeah. It's the whole, anything that's going to question you, is this art? Why is this art? Why do I feel this way? All those kind of basic art critique kind of questions. Did you two see the article about the, 
uh, I think it was in a museum in Los Angeles, and these kids thought as a joke, they put a pair of glasses on the floor. Oh, yeah, I did see that. Next to the wall. And within minutes, people were gazing at them, photographing them, because they thought they were part of an art exhibit. Oh, yeah, I I totally saw that. Yeah. I thought it was intriguing. So it was obviously if you just put a pair of glasses down in the grass, no one would do that. It's the setting is telling you this is art. And so people started to try to figure out what the person was thinking. I, I just thought that was kind of something I'll have to think about for a while. Yeah, it's um, interesting how you said that it was the context of it is what made people start to think that it was art. And that connects to actually a theory in art history. It's called the white cube theory. And it's that whole idea that art needs to be presented on crisp white walls or in a sterile gallery space. Uh, And it's that whole thing where it forces you as the viewer to, it controls how you navigate through that space, uh, how you approach artwork, all that sort of interesting thing. Yeah, that's cool. You know, it's not just art, though, because think about food. If you go to a fancy restaurant and they give you a square of something and you go to a diner and they give you the same square, they're going to present it differently. You're in a different atmosphere and your approach to the thing and your willingness to pay for the thing. It's going to be very different. And so much of that, too, is like control, like who designed the space and who is controlling you to move about through it. A lot of times throughout art history, uh, museums and galleries are often compared to like shopping malls. That is totally a controlled experience. You know, the AC is cranked, uh, how lighting is, is, or is Mm -hmm. not coming in through the building, how it's arranged that you walk through it, all of that. You know, I went to a museum in Australia where the gallery walls were painted with these insane zebra stripes in all these different colors. And I had so much trouble looking at the art. My Did the artist do the walls? No. Like the artist? Uh, they were... So I read every sign I could find in the gallery to try to figure out there were these three galleries. One had like black and white stripes, one had red and black stripes, and one had like yellow and black stripes. And then there were all these very classic paintings hanging on the walls. And I was sort of trying to understand what the relationship was. I, I didn't get it. I'm sure it's me just being stupid. But it, it was this interesting moment, though, where, like, I just somehow couldn't see the art. I just couldn't look at it. I couldn't, you know, I, like, was craving that white resting space somehow. I probably would have been the same way because that kind of sounds like sensory overload a bit. <laughs> it was, which was an interesting experience. And it reminds me a bit of here um, in Boston at the Museum of Fine Arts, they have one gallery that is hung and uh, decorated as I think the signs say, like in the way it would have been in the time period of the paintings, sort of around like the um, 1800s. And it is a fascinating and different way of viewing art because the, the paintings are hung on the walls from the floor to the ceiling and mm-hmm. there are statues everywhere and you just have no idea what you're looking at. And one of the things that the sign said is now notice like what your eye goes to. And there was this whole phenomenon during this period of time of painters painting, painting specifically to compete 
because Mm -hmm. everything was hung this way, even in exhibitions and stuff, and you didn't want to be one of the little paintings at the top, or if you were, you wanted to have, you know, something that was going to make you stand out, and, like, all these things about how scale and, like, all these things that came out in art came out from the way that the art was displayed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because it's all that whole uh, salon thing in Europe, how they were installing artwork. And if you didn't have the prime real estate, you had to carve it out for yourself some way. <laughs> Probably affects art too nowadays that is that is seen on the internet because things, certain things don't read well on your screen and other things pop out at you. And it may change the way some people create because they want to have to have people be able to pick their things out online and maybe buy them. I think that it's really hard because stuff that the way that it looks online and what it looks like in person are two such different things. And like, I've had a lot of um, conversations with people about the times that it works in your favor when something looks kind of crappy in person, but fantastic in the photo and the times it works are really against you. You know what I mean? Where you have something gorgeous and it just does not come through that screen. Yeah, I think I, it's hard because there's so many pros and cons with with all of that, really. I just always think about just being a responsible artist and trying to put up what I put up on my blog or on the Internet is as real to in person as possible. You know, I'm not trying to filter it or Photoshop it or anything crazy like that. I always feel like that's kind of almost my priority. But that may work against some people who blog, see, as a blog as bloggers. You take a lot of photographs of your work to show. And I wonder if there are certain things which you just don't, you may make them, but you don't put them on your blogs because they don't show well in a photograph online. Does that ever happen or not? That hasn't happened to me from a photograph perspective. I usually don't put things up because I don't think it's finished or I just don't really like it. It's never been because it didn't photograph well, at least for me. I have things that I've had to like monkey around with or super stage or like work out or like only take a portion of it because it doesn't work. And I also find that like I used a lot more texture, um, like actual physical like glass bead gel and all that kind of stuff earlier in my work. But none of that shows. Yeah, I was going to say that probably does based on the medium for sure. And also, I've also found now that I've started to work much larger, it's interesting how hard it is to make those pieces have the same impact. Because you can do, uh, I mean, I can make something that's four by four look glorious, but somehow Mm -hmm. to make something that's like 48 by 48 look great in a little photo, it just, it's so, it's exponentially harder. Even though in person, you're like blown away by the larger piece and the little piece kind of like, eh. And that's why I don't work big. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I was going to say, almost everything you did on Make It Artsy was tiny, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, I do everything as small as humanly possible. I mean, even my journals, when people see them in person, they're like, oh my gosh, it's much smaller and detailed than I thought it was going to be. Interesting. Why do you think, why are you attracted to the small? You know, I don't know. I have no idea. And it's so interesting, too, because people ask me, like, well, do you work big? And currently I don't. But when I was starting freelance work, uh, one of the big things that I would do was paint these giant banners for people. And they would commission me to paint, like, seven-foot, nine-foot banners. And over time, I just grew out of it and slowly shrunk down into tiny things. (laughs) 
Interesting. Do you find that yeah. that as you have gone on in your career and you're able to do more things that are like you're able to more dictate what you're doing as opposed to sort of what people want you to do that you're you work small because that's your just personal preference? Oh yeah, I mean I definitely at this point I work small because I like doing it and it feels right for me. I mean, all my work, I always am making art for myself, you know, it was kind of going back to my imagery a bit too. It's like, initially I was kind of bouncing back and forth of like, Oh, maybe I shouldn't be painting these like chopped off hands or like decapitated people. Uh, cause it's not really that appealing, but then, it, you know, it was like, well, why does my art journal have to be all rainbows and sunshine and flowers when that's really not the kind of stuff that I'm drawn to. So I think that's similar to like my scale. I just like working little. Like I love my little mini journals. I like genuinely enjoy making them and, and making them as tiny and detailed as, as humanly possible. Will you tell us about all the different things you do that make up your business? Yeah, it's a whole assortment of things. Um, obviously I sell stuff on my Etsy shop, both original artwork, my, you know, my merch, my prints, my mini journals. Uh, I teach private workshops. So like last weekend I was down on the Orange County area teaching a private class for two days. Um, the online classes. Can you explain what private workshops are for people who may be unfamiliar? Yeah. So private workshop, people just hit me up. They'll just email me and say, Hey, I want to have, you know, 10 people at my house and I'll come to them. So I'm thankful for the area that I'm at being in LA and sort of like SoCal, Orange County, San Diego area, um, because that's definitely more feasible for me. There's a lot of interest for that and I'm able to do it. You know, I'm able to just drive, you know, an hour or two down to wherever I need to go and to teach for two days and then pop back up home. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. So you would do the private teaching and then... Yeah, private teaching, then the, on the, the online classes. Yeah, so right now it's kind of really just delving into my own online classes is kind of my big thing that I'm doing right now outside of just teaching. Yeah. Cool. And so um, we talked a lot about Make It Artsy last time on the podcast, but I'd love to hear from your perspective, new to it, what, was, what were you expecting and then what was the actual experience like? Oh my gosh. Well... It's so funny. I've been, I've actually been editing the YouTube video of my make it artsy behind the scenes experience. So this is all very fresh in my brain actually, because I've been <laughs> staring, I've been uh -oh. staring at the footage all day. Um, I guess, well, I guess it helps that I've had TV experience before. So that kind of, I think where a lot of people would have the fear of being, you know, on set and with all the big cameras that was kind of removed for me. Um, it was more about just like making sure that, Oh my gosh, am I going to forget something and all that? Um, but that just like went out the window. I think the biggest takeaway from the experience is Julie, not to toot your horn here, but Oh my gosh, you are just like so amazing how you have the stamina to do all of that. I mean, I don't think people realize how many segments are shot in a day and they're out of order and you're changing your outfits and it's this project to this one. And it's just like, oh my gosh, it's just, it's exciting and crazy. Um, but overall it was just like a really good learning experience. And obviously I was super inspired by you to just like, man, I need to get my energy levels up here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do enough. <laughs> well, I also saw you were spending a lot of time, you and Seth, um, Seth Apter were talking a lot in the green room and is he someone who you knew from online previously? Yeah. So I've actually, I've known Seth 
purely online, probably for a couple of years now. Um, I don't even know how we met originally, probably just through the blogosphere of some sort. I think he shared my work at some point and I was commenting on his stuff. So we've kind of built an online friendship and I was just waiting for our, you know, our paths to cross at some point. And then it just turned out when I saw that he was going to be on the show, I emailed him and I was like, Oh my gosh, please tell me you're filming Thursday. And he was, and it was really awesome to like meet him in person. And it, honestly, it was like, I had known him forever, even though I was meeting him in person for the first time. So yeah. it was cool to have a art, art homie to hang out with. Well, I was going to say, it was really <laughs> interesting seeing the two of you in the green room because you were at once both fast friends and strangers. Like it was clear from your conversation that you like didn't like hadn't seen a lot of each other's work and like wanted to, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like he definitely wanted to poke through your journals and all that kind of stuff. And yet at the same time, you guys were just sort of like, Gab, 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 talk, 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 like just had so much, you know what I mean? And knew lots of people yeah. in common and it was just really interesting. Yeah. Every time I, I feel like, God. yeah, I was going to say every time I came back into the green room, I was like, they're, in, they're still talking. Oh yeah. I mean, like we basically <laughs> should have changed like best friend necklaces, I think by the end of the day, because <laughs> we were, uh fast friends real quick, but it I mean, it was just really great. I mean, that was definitely a highlight of of coming and filming is, is meeting him and just being able to just hang out, you know, cause there is downtime in between. Uh, so it was good to definitely snoop each other's work. Cause I, you know, I've seen again, going back to that thing, I've seen it as pictures on the internet, but I have not seen it in person. So I got to touch and feel and pick up all his stuff and he got to do the same thing to mine. And it was fun just to hang out for sure. I think art makes fast friends of people. Oh yeah. Well, especially because, you're programmed, I think, a little bit differently than other people. You know, I think like athletes are programmed one way. Uh, creative people are programmed another way, just of how we look at things and process things and communicate ideas. So it's, I think it's easy to, to you know, make those bonds fast. Well, and also I feel like I talk to so many people, um, students and other people who like one of the things they're seeking when they come to class is just they're like, I live in whatever, you know, and there's nobody around me who does this, oh, yeah. who gets it. Or like I can find, they'll say stuff like I can find oil pastel artists, I can find watercolors, but I can't find mixed media people or I can't find people who like combine, you know, uh, memory craft with this or I can't find people who do it. And it's just so interesting because I feel like we all want that community, that sense yeah. of belonging to someone who geeks out when you say, Oh my God, there's this new pump action crank marker who goes, oh, I saw that. I wanted to get that. <laughs> that marker is really dope by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's all people are talking about. I swear. That and the uh, Ecoline watercolor brushes, which I don't even think are available in the U S yet. Oh yeah, I was like, I haven't seen that yet, but that that crank marker is baller. That is totally worth it. Um, but yeah, going back to your conversation, I think the key buzzword there is community, and I've learned that how important that is. Uh, of course, through teaching, um, but especially through having my own online class. And I do have a private Facebook group that my students have access to, and we're all kind of in there. And it really is its own vibe, its own community it's on place where they share each other's work and their stories and they make friendships and it's so so important to do do you have a community of people in LA who are makers like you I really don't and I think I have to preface that because I just moved 
uh, like a couple months ago to Echo Park, downtown LA area. And before that, I was in the in the burbs, in the beach burbs, probably like an hour to an hour and a half away from where I live now. So it's really been kind of a new setup and process. Um, but on the flip side of that, I am very introverted. I am a major introvert. I might not come off like that when I'm teaching or talking or making videos, but I definitely like my alone time and usually prefer working by myself as well, too. I've always been like that, though. That's just kind of how I'm programmed. Well, I'm that Julie way, too. has a need. Yeah, you have a need for alone time. Well, thank God I was going to out myself, Mom, since you just outed me, too. But, yes, it's true. <laughs> I, uh, I, People are always shocked when I'm like, I'm actually a very shy person. No one ever guesses that. But it's like the reason yeah, is I because believe. I'm a total fake it till you make it person. And so it's, it's like – I mean, my mom can tell you my very first ballet recital – uh, in Brooklyn, when I was a little tiny kid, I came running off the stage screaming because I did not want to, I had stage fright. And I didn't want to do it, you know? And I think, like, that's, and I think it's one of those things that I've gotten over and I've learned that when you feel scared and hysterical, you just put a big, stupid smile on your face and just pretend like you're fine and eventually you will be, you yeah. know? I, on the other hand, have not recovered from that humiliation. <laughs> I think you did. It haunts me I was to this say, day. I think you did manage to send me back up on stage halfway through, Mom. Sad, really sad. It is sad. But, I mean, that's one of the reasons that I think you put me in theater when I was a little kid is because I had stage fright and I was scared. And now now you can't get me down off a of stage. But, uh but I think like being shy also in social situations is a separate thing. And like, I also find that I like to work by myself. Also, I find that I get too easily distracted when I'm with other people. And then all I do is talk. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. And not work. And I'm so. definitely, I'm very socially like awkward in a non art context. So if I'm like at a party or something, I'm super awkward. I'm that weird girl, like hanging out with your dog or cat in the corner. I'm not like, you know, kicking it by the keg or something. Uh, but in an art context, when I'm like teaching, I think because it's connected to my passion and I'm sharing that, I'm able to kind of switch over into that mode a lot easier. Yeah, I think there's something too about like when you're teaching and you're in the class, like people are there for you, like they want to talk to you. Yeah, expectation is there to yeah. perform in a sense. That's true. <laughs> well, so if you've moved yeah. recently, then you must have a brand new studio space of some kind that you're sort of getting used to. I do. And I, we've like majorly downsized. Uh, so my husband is also a creative guy as well. He's a television show writer. Um, so he was commuting from where we were in Redondo beach up to Burbank, which if you live in LA and you hear those two places, you're like, what? That's crazy. Uh, you know, he had like a two hour commute sort of thing that he was doing on top of really insane hours. So that's what caused us to move. Cause I was like, look, I can go anywhere. I'm in my, you know, as long as I have somewhere corner to make art, I'll be fine. So we majorly downsized. So I went from having like virtually almost a top floor of my house be my studio to now, and we were in a three bedroom, two bathroom freestanding house to now I'm in a one and a half bedroom apartment tiny, tiny, tiny. And I'm in a small little den room kind of thing. Um, yeah, it's like a half room. Totally. They couldn't advertise it as a second room because it didn't have the doors on it, but, uh, I've converted it into my little office space and I, uh, I purged a lot of stuff. That was probably the hardest thing was getting rid of all the art supplies, but, uh, 
for the most part, it's so far so good working in a small space. It's it's working for me. I was to say, A, you're a very nice wife. And B, uh, <laughs> what uh, – in terms of like anything that you threw away or donated or got rid of or whatever that you miss? No, not at all. No. I think I was already in purge mode just because I was downsizing so much. Um, you know, a lot of it was – honestly, a lot of it was stuff from art school when I was working towards my master's degree of like – you know, like oil paint. Like I don't use oil paint anymore. Like, let's be realistic. I'm not going to keep that in a box in my studio. It's not going to happen. So that's the kind of stuff that I was, that I was chucking. Uh, but you know, I guess I'm pretty good about, I, I mean, I should reel this back a little bit. I am pretty good about my art supplies in general. Uh, one of the big things that I love to say when I go to workshops is when I bring my ephemera for my mixed media classes, Literally all of the ephemera I own, and actually, Julie, you probably saw this when I was on the show, fits in a gallon Ziploc bag, and that's it. I don't let myself have any more ephemera than what fits in a gallon bag. O-M-G. <laughs> so I did see your gallon bag, but I just assumed that was like a little something-something that you grabbed, yeah. you know, to sort of know. hang out with because – I probably have enough to fit in a factory of gallon bags. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and students will be like, what, how is that possible? You know, how do you just have one bag of ephemera? How does that work? Uh, and the big thing that I always say is like, look, I used to be that person. I had, you know, the gallon bins of, and storage boxes of stuff, but how often are you actually digging into that and like pulling out that one piece of patterned paper or scrap? You know what I mean? And I also feel like, what paper scrap is that important that you need to hold on to it for X number oh, of years? man, Roxanne, I thought you and I were getting along so well, and now <laughs> we are just not friends. This is, this is a definite friendship timeout moment. No. That was the deal breaker. <laughs> so, but seriously, do you, so then are you, when you see something, do you have like a, if I put a new piece of paper in, I have to take something out? Do you just like yeah. sometimes purge the whole thing? Do you not keep stuff? Do you throw stuff away? Like how do, how do you maintain that for somebody who wants to be yeah. like you? So that's my system. So I have what I call the three bin system and I teach this to students when I'm in classes and I basically have three sizes that fit into little containers. And I actually, I think this might've, I might've even had one or two of these on set. I have a little like smaller palm sized container, then like a strawberry basket size, and then like a slightly bigger container that's maybe a little bit bigger than a strawberry basket. See, I saw your and strawberry basket on set. It's like a little, like literally that uh, cardboardy fruit basket that for a while anthropology yes. was making the pottery version of. And I was like, yes. oh, what a cool hipster like thing to have on the set. And now I feel chagrined that that's like yeah. real for reals. So that. So that little hipster cardboard strawberry bin contains my medium-sized ephemera. So if I overpack that, if there's too much in it, I get rid of stuff. So if I want to put more stuff into it, I got to take stuff out. But my maximum space that I allow myself is that little strawberry basket, and that's it. And for my medium size, then I have my little my little large size one, and then my my smaller little scraps. But it all fits into a gallon bag. And when you purge stuff from it, do you thoughtfully purge, like look through and like pick stuff? Or do you just grab a handful and toss it? Usually, it depends. Honestly, it depends on if I'm traveling a lot. Like if I'm teaching a lot of workshops, the stuff's coming in and out of the bag. So I kind of just don't really know like what I have sometimes. And I will kind of thoughtfully purge. 
Uh, but usually I keep the fresh stuff in the front. So slowly the old stuff gets pushed to the back of the container. So I know that I can kind of just grab from the back and not even look and toss. Interesting. Yeah. I think the other thing too is that in cycling in new stuff, you're more likely to make art. Like I get really inspired and I'm sure you do too when you see like the tiniest little piece of paper or a pattern and you're like, oh man, I know what I'm going to do with this. So to keep that kind of like excited juices flowing, I always keep new stuff on hand and you got to out with the old and with the new. I'm making all sorts of excuses for myself about why I don't have to do this right now in my head. <laughs> like seriously, like how, like really think about it. Like how many bins in your studio are just sitting there with papers that you probably haven't touched in, I mean, six months, a year, more. It's not worth oh, it. Oh man, I'm so depressed now. Okay, I have to go. Clean I have up. recipes, recipes upon recipes from the days you had to collect them you know, in actual paper. I have recipes that I started collecting when I was in eighth grade. And trust me, wow. that was a long, long time ago. It's time to throw them out. If I haven't made those things up to now, I'm well, probably see, never going to make them. With those, you have to be careful because if someone like a, maybe like a family member or relative like wrote that to you, like that at least has some like potential memories you know, a little more love attached to it. I it's not like, like I feel like these are things like that I feel like these are things that mom like clipped out of a magazine because I swear to you, she is oh. for anybody who doesn't know, it's not like mom's reading War and Peace when she goes to bed. Her bedtime reading is sometimes Whoa. I will catch her and she's like, <laughs> I'm reading a menu. And that's literally what she's doing. And she's looking up a menu at some fancy restaurant and that's what she's reading. This oh podcast God, is not about me. <laughs> I'm just saying. Everybody has their things that they like. And you have always, I know, millions of recipes that you've cut out from places and food and things that you're thinking about making. It's very, it's good for me. I enjoy it. I like coming over for dinner. Anyway. Well, if they're magazines, they can go. This conversation is turned <laughs> in an ugly, <laughs> ugly way. Oh, that's hilarious. Anyway, uh, so we've been talking for about an hour, so we should probably wrap up. Is there anything else that you'd like to add, Roxanne? No, just thank you for having me. Oh, good. And, a blast. and tell people where they can find you online. Yeah, you guys can find me on my website, www.bybun.com. And all my good stuff's there. My Instagram, social media, YouTube channel, all that good stuff. And I will say that Roxanne's Instagram is very good. I follow her. I enjoy it. So that's a good one to follow. And mom, you don't let anybody follow you on Instagram. No, but I'll be reading recipes for the rest of the <laughs> evening to console myself. I hope you My happy place. You go. Uh, and as always, you can find me at balzerdesigns.typepad.com. And do leave us your comments or questions at balzerdesigns.com backslash arting. We'd love to hear from you. And if you tweet about the show, please use the hashtag pound arting podcast, A-R-T-I-N-G-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you the next time on the Adventures in Arting podcast. <laughs>